Hey everybody and welcome back to I Just Want to Talk About the Bible. If this is your first time joining us, let me just say that I'm glad that you're here. My name is Christian Keeter and I am on staff at an international discipleship ministry called Mentoring Men for the Master, which is based out of North Carolina on the east coast of the U.S., which is where I live with my beautiful wife and our two amazing daughters. So I'm going to do today something I've done in a few previous episodes. I'm going to share with you guys a teaching that I did um, at the ministry that I just mentioned, um, Mentoring Men for the Master. Um, I had the privilege and opportunity to teach uh, this past weekend, and so I'm just going to take the audio from that message and include it here as well. And of course, I'll pop in again at the end for a few concluding remarks. I'll say at the outset that there are definitely some things that uh, I say that made more sense if you were actually in the room. For example, at one point I uh, was using my hands to help kind of paint the picture of the geography of uh, ancient Israel, where um, Galilee and Samaria and Judea were all in relation to one another. And so obviously you won't be able to see that. But what I'll do is I'll just, in the description of this episode, throw in a link to a, um, a picture of a map from uh, ancient Israel, first century Israel. So you can also see what I was talking about. So just uh, look beyond those things and hopefully the content will bless you. All right, I'll pop back in at the end. All right, go ahead and um, go ahead and open your Bibles up to Second Chronicles 20. Let's just get right into it. Um, because I'm going to be reading through this passage and stopping along the way, and it'll be really helpful to have the text in front of you so that you don't get, you know, we don't get lost whenever I pause and um, just make some comments about what we're reading. So Second Chronicles 20 talks about um, something that happens during the reign of King Jehoshaphat. Um, he is, you know, Thad did a lot of work recently talking about the divided kingdom of Israel. And he talked about, you know, we had King Saul, King David, and then Solomon, and then the kingdom was divided after that. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, remained king over Judah, and then Jeroboam, y'all remember this, I'm not going to reteach all this, became king over the ten northern tribes. And the ten northern tribes were called Israel. The southern tribe of Judah was just called Judah. It becomes a really confusing time in Israel's history when you're reading the Bible, especially in the book of First and Second Kings, because there's a lot of back and forth, it's like, between Israel and Judah. So Jehoshaphat is one of the descendants, and he is um, of, of the Davidic line. And so he's the king of, um, of Judah at this time. He's the fourth king of Judah um, during the divided kingdom. And so I just wanted to get this firmly rooted where in the point of Israel's history this is, because it's, it's important for us to understand these things. It's important for us to see how these things work together. Um, and, the, and before we get into this, a, a little bit of completely useless knowledge that might make it into some conversations somewhere in your life. I was curious when looking at this, I'm like, where did the phrase jump in Jehoshaphat come from? I mean, y- y'all remember jump, jump in yeah. Jehoshaphat, right? I mean, obviously, what was it, Yosemite Sam, who was always jumping Jehoshaphat, you know, and like Looney Tunes and stuff. Apparently, like in the 19th century, people were looking for exclamations that weren't like curse words. <laughs> I'm serious. And a lot of these things rhymed, you know, and a lot of them had like alliteration. So jumping Jehoshaphat became the origin of that. I have not seen any um, precedent for his ability to jump or to leap. And so I don't know. That's one of your little known facts. Yeah, I, yeah, it's a little known fact about him. He was really, really good at pole vaulting. I don't know. And so, but it's just, so there you go, jumping Jehoshaphat. So Second Chronicles 20, 
Um, this is, we're picking up right in the middle of Jehoshaphat's life. A little bit of a bio about Jehoshaphat. He is a pretty good guy. Um, he's, he's pretty good. I mean, he does a couple things where you're like, eh. Like he allies with the king of Israel, who is not a bad guy, and that wasn't, or not, he was a bad guy, he's not a good guy, and that wasn't a good sort of situation. And so, but, but by and large, Jehoshaphat, his heart was faithful to the Lord, and um, I think that's what you could say. His heart was faithful to the Lord, but he made some mistakes along the way, which that sounds like the rest of us, right? And so, but Jehoshaphat, so he, we're going to pick up chapter 20. Um, the story kind of tells itself, and I'll just pause along the way. So after this, the Moabites and Ammonites, um, and with them some of the Meonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came, from, uh, came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. So let's pause for one second here. So there's three armies that have allied together. They're coming against Judah. And it's obviously sizable. It's a threat. And Because what's his response? His response is Jehoshaphat, it says he was afraid. He was afraid. Um, and what I'm about to say isn't necessarily relevant to what we're going to be getting into today. Like the story of Jehoshaphat is going to be the springboard into our main focus. But this is still a couple of things I want to point out as we move towards that part of the story. Um, when we are faced with fear, says then Jehoshaphat was afraid, there are three typical responses we can choose from. And we'll see how Jehoshaphat responds in just a minute. But the first response is like Elijah. You remember when Jezebel was threatening him, we can flee. We can run. We can try to avoid the circumstance entirely and go and hide. Um, then, actually, Jehoshaphat's father, Asa, he did another one of the um, choices. What he did was he basically relied on, he tried to solve the problem in his own strength. He tried to, he allied himself with Syria, which was not a good thing to do to get himself out of an unpleasant circumstance. So we can try to run from it, try to avoid it. We can try to solve the problem in our own strength, or we can do what Jehoshaphat does actually. So verse three, then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord, which this is relevant to what Thad has been talking about for, for many, many weeks now. So we can run from the circumstance, we can try to solve in our own power, or we can set our face to seek the Lord and rely on him. So he set his face to uh, seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast all throughout Judah or throughout all Judah uh, and Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, and Jehoshaphat begins to pray, verse 6, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, um, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? Um, let's see. For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Let's pause. 
That line is beautiful. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. If that would just be our posture, if that would be our first response, not our last resort. So Jehoshaphat, like it says, it says he set his face to seek the Lord, and then here we hear his prayer. We hear his prayer that he's offering up to the Lord. A couple you know, details just to explain a little bit what he's talking about. He talks, of course, about um, Abraham. You guys will remember God promised the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants. He said he was going to give it to them. This is why it's called the promised land. And after you know, going down into Egypt, the descendants of Abraham, they came back out, led by Moses, and they began to take the land under the leadership of Moses' protege, Joshua. And so this is a land, but when they were going to the land, you can read about this in, I think it's Deuteronomy 2. Yeah, Deuteronomy 2, the Lord explicitly said, don't fight against certain people groups. These people groups weren't in the land, they were on the way to the land. And these people groups, and two of them mentioned by name, if I'm not mistaken, in Deuteronomy 2, and if I'm wrong, somebody can come up and just tell me afterwards. But in Deuteronomy 2, two of the specific people groups mentioned are um, the people of Mount Seir, which are listed here, and the people of Moab. God says, don't fight against them. And his reason is, and I, I, this is kind of getting into the weeds, those people are the descendants of Esau. You remember Esau, Jacob's brother? And so God says, do not fight against that. That's basically Esau's territory. And so don't fight against them. The land that I promised you is over here. And so Israel obeyed, and they did not fight against them. And so Jehoshaphat in his prayer says, these people who our ancestors didn't fight against are rewarding us now by coming to attack us. So Lord, defend us, please. He even says that, look, they reward us by coming to attack us. So that's what's going on. He prayed this prayer. And so after this prayer, resuming in verse 13, it says, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came, uh, came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. So the Lord responds to his prayer. And this is what he says. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. So the prophet comes with the word from the Lord, says, the battle's not yours, it's God's. You're not even going to have to fight, but go out against them. The response, continuing in verse 18, Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. So they praise. Now we're fast forwarding to the next day. And they rose early in the morning, probably because they couldn't sleep. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And then we're about to get into our verses here, but man, what a, what a, I mean, you, you know the army had to be getting like rowdy when that was like, this is it was such like a good short, like rallying speech. I mean, man, when you are following a, a somebody who is 
confident in the Lord and is just solidly, all I'll say, when you're following a strong godly leader, it empowers you. Amen. When you're under somebody who is seeking the Lord and has, understands, believes that they've heard from the Lord and that they're following the Lord and they're going to unashamedly do it knowing that they don't know all the details of it, that's the kind of person you want to follow. And that's what we're seeing right here. So now we're at our memory verses. And when he, obviously talking about Jehoshaphat, and when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing in praise, and when they began to sing in praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. I'm not a military strategist. But that seemed like a really bad strategy. I mean, like, how did I, yeah, I, I, yeah. And so two of the armies rise up against one, kills that army, these attacking armies, and the remaining two kill each other. So then, we'll, just, just to finish out, we won't read the rest of this next section, but just to tie a bow on it. In verse 24, it says, When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. Which makes you wonder, it's like, what happened to the last guy? <laughs> I mean, do they just like go at each other the exact same minute and just both fall over at the same time? I don't know, maybe, maybe a few people just ran away and they're like, I'm getting out of here. But there's no one left alive here, just dead bodies everywhere. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. And then on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the valley of Barakah to this day. Barakah means blessing. So we could um, keep talking about that. It's a really enjoyable story. Like, I would love to see that depicted. You know, and that'd be, that'd be a fun movie to watch, wouldn't it? Um, but let's back up a little bit. So we've seen kind of everything that happens here. We see here comes this really unpleasant circumstance, this really um, truly life-threatening circumstance in the life of Jehoshaphat and his entire kingdom. Everyone's looking to him because he's the king. I mean, where else do you look besides the king? And so then he is afraid and sets his face to seek the Lord. The Lord sends the prophet and says, you're not even going to have to fight in this battle. But there's something that Jehoshaphat did that the Lord didn't explicitly tell him to do, but it was an act of faith. What was it? Well, those, I'm fasting, that was the first step. Yeah, yeah, he fasted to seek the Lord. But the Lord said, he says, you're not even going to have to fight in the battle. And so what did he do when he went out to fight? Who did he put up front? The choir. Yeah, in their holy attire is what it says. And so it's, uh, again, once again, I'm not a military strategist. But if somebody was like, you know, let's put the guys with the trumpets in front of the guys with the swords. I don't know. I just, you know. But what was this? The Lord had told him, you will not have to fight in this battle. And as an act of faith, it would seem, Jehoshaphat said, okay, I believe. And he put the singers out front who were praising the Lord. Read back through it. There's not a command to put the singers out front. Isn't that interesting? But listen to the verbiage. And this is, this is, this is the springboard I was talking about. Listen to the verbiage. Verse 22, once more. The choir's out front. They're singing the song. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing in praise, 
the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. It explicitly connects their worship and praise of the Lord to the victory. And when they began to praise, he set an ambush. Now, am I suggesting that if they had not sung, that God would have been like, you know what, actually, I'm not going to deliver you? You know, because he had already said he would. No, I'm not suggesting that at all. What I am saying, though, is let's not deal too deeply in hypotheticals. Let's just look at what the text actually says. And it says, when they began to praise, then the victory came. Jehoshaphat. We should start naming our kids Jehoshaphat. Like some biblical names, like he's cool. I'm like, you know, he's cool. So we see here this incredible story where praising the Lord is connected to victory in a situation. It's an unpleasant circumstance. It's a fearful circumstance. It's a truly life-threatening circumstance. But praise is connected to victory. It's connected to the Lord working. It's connected to incredible things happening. Acts 16, we see a very similar thing, don't we? Let's flip there because these two passages talking about kind of a similar sort of thing. Acts 16. Paul is on one of his missionary journeys. Um, He is in uh, Philippi with his crew, um, whom I affectionately call the God Squad. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure that's what they went by. I'm I'm not positive, though. But, you know, still doing some research on that. So he's there in... Uh, Philippi. And while they're in Philippi doing their thing, um, there is a, y'all probably know the story, a slave girl who has a spirit of divination, is what the text says. And that her owners, the owners of this slave girl, made a lot of money off of her because by fortune telling. And so she's got some sort of demonic possession thing going on that enables her to do fortune telling and divination. Um, and that's uh, in verse 16 of Acts 16. We were going to a place of prayer. We were there met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. I'm just going to read through the passage. Um, She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, (laughs) turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Y'all ever witness an exorcism that flew out of it, like float out of annoyance? <laughs> I mean, it's almost like Paul turned around and was like, shut up and get out of her. And it just like, that's, you know, he says, having become greatly annoyed, which we all, I mean, Paul was clearly fiery. I mean, just, just read Acts, read anything. He, he had some, he had some chutzpah. And so like he, 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 I, I can't imagine what this would have been like. So he, you know, this is great news for this, this little slave girl but it ends up being bad news for Paul and Silas. And this actually, this is just my thing, because you wonder, it's like, why didn't he do it sooner? Why didn't he just cast it out in the first place? He might have known what would follow. He might have been able to guess, if I do this, this is going to lead to certain events. And I don't know, you can't, again, we can speculate, but we can't really be sure. Continuing to verse 19 of Acts 16, but when her owners, the slave girl's owners, saw that their hope for gain, hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So they get a they stir up a mob of sorts. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. 
And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And so they're in the innermost part of the prison. Their feet are in stocks. What was their crime? They cast a demon out of a slave girl. You know, but they dragged him to the city before the magistrates and they said, they're doing stuff that's not good for Romans to do and it's bad for us. And so they just stir up a mob, which, I mean, you just get the feeling that it's like, you, you get the feeling that Rome really wanted to maintain peace or not peace, wanted to maintain order, order. And their methods for doing so um, were very, very gruesome for doing this. And so when that order is threatened, they, they're going to stomp it out. And so that's what we see here. He says, like you said, um, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So threat to Rome, put them in prison, right? So verse 25, they're now in prison. It's not a good situation. They didn't do anything wrong. And their feet are in stocks. About midnight, verse 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Isn't that an interesting detail to include? And the prisoners were listening to them which, get a little preachy just for a moment, if I may. People are watching. Amen. The prisoners are listening to us, as it were. You see? How we're handling and responding to things, other people are witnessing this. And how we respond is going to impact them. So, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I guess they really didn't have much of a choice. And suddenly, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Which, again, pause. The fact that this was his solution shows how cruel Rome's punishment would have been to this jailer. Why would your solution be, because if that was me, I'd be like, man, I probably need to move to another town, start a new career entirely. But he's drawing his sword. He's about to kill himself. Rome would probably would have killed him anyways, you know? Possibly. I mean, yeah. I mean, we, again, we don't know exactly how, but in his mind, him falling on his sword in the moment was better than what would happen if he didn't. Rome is bad, y'all. So he drew the sword to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Um, was about to kill himself here. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, I imagine so, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. It, the story goes on, and we can just stop here, but it goes on to say the magistrates the next day release Paul. Like they're saying, okay, let, let Paul and Silas go. And Paul, again, Paul... He's just, got, he's just got a backbone. Paul says, because Paul is a Roman citizen, and this is an important detail, because the things that Rome could do to non-Romans was more than what they could do to Romans. There were things that were illegal to do to Roman citizens. It was part of being Roman. And so you could, um, you could do like all, yeah, all sorts of things to um, 
non-Romans, pretty much the list is endless, but there were laws protecting Roman citizens, and Paul knew this. Paul was a Roman citizen. He says, let's see here, the, the magistrates say they're going to let him go. And so when the, the police reported these words, no, no, I'm sorry, let me back up a little bit. But Paul said to them, after the, Paul receives this news, okay, you guys can go ahead and leave now. Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men, uh, uh, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. That's what Paul says. That's what Paul says to the police. Like, no, they beat us. We're Roman citizens. Let them come and take us out. Public apology, please. You know? I mean, I don't know. If I were Paul, I'd be like, okay, bye. I'm out of here. Like, it was Philippi, great place. I'll write some letters. But I... <laughs> Well, I got to get out of here. So the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Because now the magistrates are going to be in trouble if this reached the right ears. You beat a Roman citizen with Raj, you didn't even hear the case, you just threw him in prison? So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. I imagine so. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. That's incredible and really humorous at certain parts, isn't it? I mean, Paul, man. Paul. But what is the common factor here? What does um, 2 Chronicles 20 and Acts 16 have in common? Praise in the Lord. That's exactly right. So about midnight, this is back our memory verses that were assigned this week. About midnight, <clears throat> Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. I could say the exact same thing about this that I said about Second Chronicles 20. If they had not been singing and praying, would the bonds have been unfastened? Would the earthquake have come? Would the doors have opened? We don't know. We can't, how can we say that? That's just totally a hypothetical scenario. All we have is that the scriptures, the Bible, connects these things. It did not have to include those two details. Once again, <laughs> praising the Lord and worshiping him Gratitude to the Lord, thankfulness, is connected to victory and freedom. And we see it in many places in the scriptures. These are just two examples. And so one thing that we see from Paul, Silas, Jehoshaphat, and the, the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, they were praising the Lord before their circumstances changed. They were worshiping God, praying to the Lord, singing hymns to God, praising him before the big move of God came, right? The, the, the singers were in front of the army and they're marching out there. And when they began to sing, then the armies were routed. And by the time, from their perspective, they're just marching. By the time they, they don't know, it's not like they're walking and Joshua's like, oh yeah, the armies were just routed. Like, I just know it. I just No, it's like, no, they're singing and they're walking. And by the time they get to the place where they told they were going to be, all they see is dead bodies. We have the privilege of having kind of a, a, you know, aerial view of what's going on here. Paul and Silas, it was as they were singing, not, not before they were singing, that everything was unlocked, opened. But I find in our experience, that's typically opposite. We wait until something happens 
We wait until the good happens. We wait until the Lord does something we want him to, and then the praise really starts to come. And typically, that praise is short-lived. It's some kind of like emotional burst in the moment, so grateful for what happened. But then our life kind of sinks back down to this, the way it was before, where it's like gratitude and praising the Lord is not the norm, really, because there's now a new crisis. There's a new army attacking Jerusalem. I'm in a different prison than the one at Philippi. We see in Paul and Silas, Jehoshaphat, <clears throat> choosing to praise the Lord even when things don't look good. We see that in them. Now this is something that does not um, come naturally to us. Discontentment and grumbling actually come really naturally to us. Um, you know, and it's, it's what's really interesting, and this, this is just, so we see with Jehoshaphat and Paul and Silas, them praising the Lord when visibly there was no, yeah, okay, humanly speaking, they didn't see the reason to. The opposite side of this is the people of Israel in the wilderness, they were grumbling even though they had seen the reason to praise the Lord. So, for example, okay, so um, Exodus 15, Israel passes through the waters of the Red Sea. This is, of course, after the ten plagues. Incredible deliverance. Not only that, they plundered the Egyptians on their way out. They asked of their Egyptian neighbors, the Lord told them to, for, like, gold and silver and stuff like that. And the Egyptians were like, fine, take it, get out. You know, like, here, here it is. It says that God gave them favor in the eyes of the Egyptians, and so they plundered the Egyptians on their way out. So not only are they being delivered from uh, Egypt, they're also going out with tons of precious metals and stuff like this, which... Sadly, where do you think they got the gold for the golden calf? That's a completely different conversation. But they were slaves. They weren't walking around with gold beforehand. The very thing that you know God gave them by favor, they, they used to build an idol. Anyways, that's a different lesson. So, so they're on their way out. They pass through the Red Sea. You know, Pharaoh and his armies drown in the Red Sea three days after this. Three days. They're in the wilderness, and they don't find any water. And the grumbling begins. The saga of grumbling, which, I mean, which, which is the mantra of the, that generation of Israel in the wilderness. And so, of course, the Lord um, leads them. They get to a place called Mara, and the water's bitter there. That's why it's called Mara, because Mara means bitter. And so then the Lord shows Moses a log. He throws it in there. The water becomes sweet, and they can drink it. Y'all might remember this. It's Exodus 15. You can read it. But, um, but the point is that they had already seen God do incredible things, supernatural, unbelievable things. And then something much more mundane, like where are we going to get water comes, and they start grumbling. It's obvious that the God who did the ten plagues and parted the Red Sea could supply water, but they're grumbling. And, um, and I, I, I unfortunately in my life have been much, much more like the people of Israel than like Jehoshaphat or Paul or Silas. Y'all remember the 10 lepers that Jesus healed? Luke 17, I think it's Luke 17, 11 through 19. We don't, we don't have to go there right now, but there's 10 lepers. They're right on the kind of the border of uh, Galilee and Samaria. Galilee, Samaria, Judea. There you go, geography lesson. So it's, it is um, right on the border up there. And they're along that. And so then there's 10 lepers. And of course, according to the law of Moses, Leviticus 13 and 14, they had to stand a certain distance apart. They had to communicate that they were unclean. They had to shout, unclean, unclean, so that people wouldn't get near them and risk potentially contracting leprosy. 
And so there's 10 of these guys, because who else can they hang out with than other lepers? So there's 10 of them, and Jesus is passing by, and they cry out to him for mercy. You remember this? He heals them. He tells them to go show themselves to the priest. Um, I'm just kind of paraphrasing here. And it says, as they went, they were cleansed, which that actually kind of maps onto the other stuff that we're talking about right now. As they went, they were cleansed. But what happened? What happened after they were cleansed? Right. So he sends them to the priest. He sends them to the priest because the priest could diagnose but not cure. And the priest was basically their pathway back into society because once he pronounced them, hey, you're good to go. I've diagnosed you as healed and they can be readmitted. So they're on their way there. They realize they're cleansed. And one out of the 10, and a Samaritan no less, which is, again, a different conversation entirely, turns back and falls at Jesus' feet and praises him. And Jesus even acknowledges that the only one returned. And you guys might remember this. I'll, I'll read this verse real quick. I'm just going to flip over here. You don't, you don't have to go. Yeah, he says, it says, and he um, fell on his feet, giving him thanks. He fell, I'm sorry, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks, the one that came back. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Um, Percentage-wise, only 10% came back, one out of 10, to give thanks to the Lord. And I don't think that this is just an account. I think it's, it's, it's obviously an account of something that happened, but it's also a, um, it's a view into the way that we as people are. One out of 10 came back to give thanks. One out of 10, praise the Lord. The other 90%, and they may have been thankful enough in their heart. They were probably so excited. But they didn't actually praise the Lord. He said, where are the nine? And this reveals something. It reveals that it's way easier to not give thanks. It's much easier. It's much easier to not give thanks. It is much more natural to go on our merry way, to move from one thing to the next. And so it, it, it makes you ask the question, well, why doesn't it come naturally? Why is this something that we must choose to do? Why, why is it so easy to forget to praise God? And the answer to that question is the same reason why we don't oftentimes praise him before we see him move. It's the same reason we don't praise him in the storm. It's the same reason that we don't praise him in the prison cell or when the armies are coming. It's because if this is our life, we are standing like right here staring at the specific circumstances as, at our life. And we are not, we're looking at what's directly in front of us. And we haven't stepped back and kind of had a little bit more of a panoramic view here. We get so caught up in the current crisis that everything else falls to the wayside. And there's something else that we do. And we don't necessarily know that we do this. But we interpret God's character through our circumstances. Which is 100% backwards. Which, simple example, um, I pray for something, something that I deem as good, and we all know that we are 100% right all the time when deciding what is good or not for ourselves. <laughs> I mean, right? And, and honestly, what I'm talking about, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The, the, if you boil the enemy's lie down to its most basic components, he's saying God is holding out on you, and he does not have your best interest at heart, so you need to take the situation into your own hands and make it happen. That was the essence of the lie of Eden. And that's the essence of the lie he tells us today. It just has slightly different forms. Slightly. 
And so we interpret God's character through our circumstances. So simple example, I pray for something. I say, Lord, I, please, please give me this. He does not give it to me. Therefore, I conclude he does not love me. You see? So circumstance, I prayed for something, it doesn't happen. I look at this circumstance, and through this circumstance, I look at the character of God, and I come to conclusions based on that, on what he did or did not do. That comes naturally to us, but that's backwards. That's completely backwards. Rather, this thing of Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving will be very inconsistent, sporadic, and short-lived, praising the Lord, if that's how we approach circumstances. However, we flip this around and begin to interpret our circumstances through the character of God and through his word and through his promises, then there's always occasion for praise. Simple example, using that same one. I prayed for something and God didn't give it to me. But I know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Therefore, this must not have been good, and I praise the Lord that he withheld something from me that is not good. Because the scriptures say, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Or even Psalm 3410, which is one of our memory verses, the young lions suffer hunger and want, but those who seek the Lord lack what? No good thing. And so you see what I'm doing is a little bit of self-talk, a little bit of kind of preaching to yourself where I'm informing my thinking with the word of God and I'm saying, I don't understand why God did or did not answer this specific prayer in this example, but I know reasons that it can't be. It can't be because he doesn't love me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? And so, I mean, what, what else could he have done? Um, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God has been clearly manifested. And so we have to begin to look at our circumstances through the lens of his character and through his word. And this, of course, requires um, familiarity with this. But it requires more than just familiarity. This needs to be real. Because, you know, you've been, in, you've been in a situation yourself. You've seen people who know the word of God like the back of their hand, but they're dry. And this is why... One of the reasons, this is kind of a side note, that we emphasize meditating on the scriptures here. Because it is through meditating on the word of God that the Holy Spirit will take the word of God and make it real in our hearts. It's frequently called illumination. as, as you know, the, the big word for it. But it's just something that he does. And this is so important. So we have to do that. And so through meditating on the word of God and prayer, this will become more and more real to us. And so how does this look? We do the exact same thing Jehoshaphat did in the circumstance. We fall on our face, we seek the Lord, and we pray through the word, asking the Lord, help us open my eyes to this. Help me to believe this. The psalmist prayed in Psalm 119, 18. He said, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So we have to learn to begin to interpret God's um, or our circumstances through God's character. And so this is, um, this is something that I wrote in my journal many months ago, which would lead you to believe that I've mastered it. <laughs> and if you want to believe that, go, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, like, seriously, I've got this written right here. All caps, emboldened. We will never be content until we've learned to be thankful. Where there is no gratitude towards the Lord, there is no joy. We will never be content until we are grateful. Because again, like I said, Ammon, Moab, Mount Seir, yeah, that's one occurrence. But our life is full of these things. It seems like each and every day, or at least each and every week, there's some new crisis, some new anxiety, some new fear, some new stressor, some new something that comes along where you're like, if God would just take this away. If he just takes it away, then I'd praise him. Oh, I would. 
If you just give me this, if you would just take away this, if you would just change the way I feel about this or something like that. And the fact of the matter is, like, yes, I said, like I said, um, yes, you will praise him, but it'll be short-lived because the fact of the matter is if we're not praising him now consistently, we won't praise him then consistently. But we tell ourselves that because it makes us feel a little bit better. Once my circumstances change, then I will. But the, the reality is that circumstances don't change our behavior. They reveal it. We don't like that. This is why we like to say things like, I was just having a bad day. Well, be that as it may, in reality, our circumstances were just revealing something that's in our heart. You know how we know? Two people can have the exact same thing happen in their lives and they respond completely differently. So it obviously isn't the circumstances' fault. Wow. It's, it's revealing something in my heart. And of course, we can look to the Lord. Um, our circumstances will never be comparable to his. And yet he always responded rightly. And so that proves circumstances do not dictate behavior. They reveal character. Mm -hmm. This is very important. And the way we learn gratitude, thankfulness to the Lord, is the opposite way that we think. In our flesh, we think, oh, I'll learn to be grateful when I get what I want. Give me what I want, I'll be thankful. And yeah, and if my Thanksgiving is short-lived, then just keep giving me things I want. That'll keep it going. You know, it's like so, but what that does is that ties my gratitude and my contentment to circumstances. Doesn't it? Ties it to those things. And so the way to learn contentment, the way that we learn to praise God no matter what is going on is by not getting everything we want. And this makes sense if you think about it. If you want something, and, I'm, and listen, the Lord blesses us, okay? I'm not saying that God's going to say no to every single solitary thing um, that we ask for or anything like that, but I am saying he's perfectly wise, he knows what is best for us, and he's concerned about our character. And so sometimes he might even delay answering a prayer because he's using that situation as a catalyst to develop our character, where he might be like, yeah, you can have this thing, but before you do, we have some work to do in your heart. Let me just cut in before I continue that thought and say, you know, like with Jehoshaphat and all these people, maybe the reason that we're not seeing a move of God in a certain area of our life is because we're grumbling and complaining instead of giving thanks before we see the victory. You know, maybe that's why. Maybe, maybe the reason why our feet are still in the stocks and we're locked in the inner prison is because we're refusing to give thanks. And the Lord's like, I'm going to release you from this circumstance. And again, I don't know what your circumstance is. I'm not going to promise what God is going to do one way or the other, but I can promise it will be for your good and his glory, whatever he does. So I can say that. But, but maybe the reason we're still fasting in there is because we're like, I just cast a demon out of a slave girl. I did a good thing. And now this is happening to me. It's like, no, if we would just like turn our eyes upon Jesus, right? And just begin to like, praise him, then maybe, maybe we'd see the change that we want. So, you know, I, I shared a number of months ago about my um, experience where I felt like the Lord called me to give up coffee. Obviously, personal conviction. Don't want to make it awkward for you guys. I see all these coffee mugs, not a problem. No, just, just, a, just a personal conviction, right? And I believe that part of what he um, was teaching me through the process, and again, this didn't click immediately, um, and it still hasn't fully clicked. But I believe that part of what he's doing is teaching me how to be content and to be thankful. Because there was something I wanted. He told me to give it up. 
I didn't want to, but now I have the opportunity to choose gratitude and thanksgiving. And in so doing, I'm taking a step in the direction of my contentment not being connected to my circumstances. They're rooted in the Lord. And so a lot of times, and that's a simple, silly example with not really that many implications, but, it, but it's, a, it's a real example from my life. And so, but, um, but contentment is gained by choosing to praise him when things do not go the way that we would want them to necessarily. I have a couple of quotes that I thought were really good about this. Y'all, y'all know Warren Wearsby, really famous um, Bible commentator. Um, y'all have probably read something of his, even if you don't know it. He's just kind of that all over the place. He has a quote. He said, A thankful spirit is a mark of Christian maturity. When a believer is abounding in thanksgiving, he is really making progress. And we can sense that. When you're talking to somebody who's in a difficult set of circumstances, but their posture is still gratitude towards the Lord, you're like, that just kind of exudes kind of a calm, quiet maturity. And you want to emulate it. You don't want to go through the circumstances that will develop it, but you like that. You're like, oh, I wish I had that, you know? And, and, but you haven't heard how they got there because none of us are born selfless. All of us are born grumblers. Gratitude is learned. Um, but gratitude is also, I'll say this before, there's one more quote I want to say. Gratitude is also reflexive. As we spend time with the Lord, and what I mean by this is it's just like the natural response to actually being in the presence of Jesus. And I'm not just talking about sitting down and reading your Bible. I'm talking about really being with Jesus, meditating on his word and prayer. When you're, and you guys can relate to this. When you've experienced him really in those times, it's just the best thing. When his presence is so real and you're just grateful, you're just thankful, and you just love him. And so it, in a lot of sense, gratitude just flows out of that. You can't, you can't grit your teeth and self-generate it. It comes as a result of being in his presence. Second quote that I wanted to talk about, Port City Community Church, Pastor Mike Ashcraft. Years ago, I, was, um, I heard a sermon from him, and he said there's, and I thought this was really astute. He said there are two things, um, two marks of, or here are two marks of spiritual maturity. Consistency and thankfulness. I'm like, yeah. If somebody is consistent and somebody is thankful, that's a lot of stability. You know, when I was um, preparing for this, I jotted down a few more scriptures because this thing of Thanksgiving, it appears in a lot more places than you would think in the Bible. But, but what's interesting, it doesn't always take up a full verse. It almost feels like just kind of tacked in, not quite parenthetical, but it's, it's almost like, oh, don't forget, be thankful. Like, this is so important. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. I want to read just a couple of these. Obviously, um, we do all things without grumbling or disputing was one of the memory verses. And so that's the opposite kind, or opposite side of that coin. Philippians 4, 6, famous passage about anxiety. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. By the way, if you're letting your request be made known to God, then you're asking him to do something in your life, which means that it hasn't already happened. And so the thanksgiving comes with the request, not necessarily with the answer, although that will certainly lead to thanksgiving as well. My point is, Paul's saying, praise him when you're asking for it. Same thing we've been talking about. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, 
giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here, singing and making melody to your heart, or to the Lord in your heart, with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything. So you see, it's kind of part of this bigger um, bigger conversation. And honestly, it, it, if you look at that passage, it looks to be um, describing what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody. To the, so this is, um, this is another place where you see, okay, this emphasis on Thanksgiving. Colossians 3, I'm not going to go through this whole list, otherwise we'll be here a while. Um, it says, and Colossians 3, 15 through 17, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then, of course, with Psalm 107.1, um, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, which I'm sure a lot of you probably noticed that was very similar to what the singers in front of the army said. That phrase, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever, that or some variation of that is a very repeated refrain. Maybe we should start repeating that. Man, like, what if we started our mornings by quoting that verse? Like, just kind of like as the, 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 this is what today is going to be like. I'm going to give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever, come what may. So, of course, and I've, I've been dancing around this topic, but how do we do this? How, how do we actually do this? And I'll just repeat what I've said so far. We have to take a little bit of a step back. We have to take a step back from our specific circumstances, begin to look at our circumstances through the lens of God's character. Begin to say, what does the Lord, through his word, say about this? What can I conclude about this topic knowing God's character? Are there any promises that he's made that I can lean against in this circumstance? Whatever it is, find a reason to praise him. Even if it's just, I don't understand, but you do, Lord. And this is going to be for my ultimate good. Easier said than done. This is something that we learn to do. Again, grumbling comes naturally. And this has to be done in the context of your relationship with him. This comes in crying out in prayer, meditating on the word of God. It's clinging on to these promises. And so that's a choice. Because again, we're just going to naturally drift down the stream. It's really, really easy to do. Um, Shakespeare. Why are you laughing, Will? Quoting, quoting Shakespeare. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what he says. He could be writing about what he ate for breakfast, and it would just sound beautiful, though, because it's Shakespeare. <laughs> He's just making up words. But Shakespeare had this quote, and I thought it was really good, actually. He said, How sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. How sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. Uh, it is to have a thankless child. Yeah, how much more for those of us who are children of the king? Wow. Right? How sharper than a serpent's tooth. So a couple of practical things I just want to offer to you guys. Um, there is a, a book that, um, I've read the first chapter of it. Um, I haven't read the whole book. My wife read the book. It's called A Thousand Gifts. And it's... Um, in the first chapter, it's, it's intense. It, it's, it's the author is describing her experience. It's really, really sad. Her younger sister died when she was four, and her younger sister was two. Um, she witnessed it. A truck driver hit 
her toddler of a sister just really upsetting. Then her, I think, two nephews, their lungs collapsed when they were just children, like really heart-wrenching circumstances. This person is a believer. And um, she's writing, um, well, the book is called A Thousand Gifts. One of the um, things that A Thousand Gifts talks about is making a list of A Thousand Gifts. Surprise, that makes sense, right? And so the idea is that you just begin to jot things down. You make a list that totals up to be a thousand items of things for which you're thankful. A thousand gifts. Obviously, you're not going to do this in one day. Though, and if we sat down long enough and really began to ponder the mercies of the Lord, I bet we could make a lot more progress on it than we think we could. So a few months ago, um, I started one of these lists, and uh, it's been really good. And you can, and some of the things are mundane. Thank you, Lord, for the beautiful weather. Other things are really, really big. Thank you, Lord, for opening my eyes to this area of my heart that I had been oblivious to and working in this and everything in between. And the goal is not to, well, finish my thousand gifts list, done. The goal is to change the way you think. The goal is for the gifts list to be training wheels so that by the time they're removed, you're still riding the bike just fine. I have trained myself to look for things for which I am thankful is the point, right? And so that even when I'm done writing things down, I now have a posture of thinking and um, just towards the Lord and where I'm looking for these things. In that same vein, um, I know some of y'all, I've, I've talked to some of y'all about this book, but have many of you heard of the book called Winning the War in Your Mind? Yeah. Winning the War in Your Mind by Pastor Craig Rochelle. It is, I'm only on chapter, Lacey and I are reading it, we're on chapter like five or six. It's a wonderful book, and the strength of the book is in the assignments in the back. It's basically um, about, in using biblical terminology, it is about being transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so it goes through and identify old lies that you've been believing, then you replace the lie with the truth, you write a declaration based on that truth, um, you begin to note um, the sort of ruts that you find yourself in as far as thinking, and uh, it's really taking thoughts captive. And so one thing he talks about is um, neural pathways which some of you guys have probably heard about neural pathways before. Essentially, the easiest way, um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a neurologist, and so I'll just explain it to you how I understand it. Basically, if you imagine your mind like the woods, the more you walk down a path, the easier it is to walk down it. The more you walk down the same path, and you can research this. I mean, re research neural pathways. There's like whole bodies of research so like around this sort of thing. Um, I think it's called the neuroplasticity of the mind or the brain, which basically means if something is plastic, that means it can be changed. And that's good news. That means the way that we're stuck thinking, our grumbling, our discontentment, our ingratitude can be changed. So neural pathways, the more you walk down a path, the easier it is to go down that path. The more you trot it, the more the grass dies, the soil gets pressed down. It's just like you're walking through the woods, and it's like you can kind of tell where a path is. You're like, okay, I can see. The grass isn't really growing here that much. People have been walking here. When you begin to change the way you think, just now you're turning this way, and it's like a jungle. There's vines hanging down, and you're sitting here with, with a machete. At first... No, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. This is, again, I'm not suggesting you try this in your own power. This needs to be leaning against the Lord, crying out to him for help. This is because you're doing, you know, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, right? And the way that we do this is by replacing the lies with scripture. So when we're tempted to go down the old path, we meditate on a passage of scripture that is relevant. And cry out to God, asking us to give us insight, wisdom. So but you're standing here, 
here's the woods. You take out the machete and you start hacking away. At first, it's exhausting. And I mean, even reflexively, you know, you walk, you might start going down the other path again. But the more you choose to go over here to this new path and hack through it and walk across it, the more it's going to be smashed down. The more it's going to be, the, the soil is going to be hardened and the grass is going to die. And the less you go down this one, the more overgrown it's going to become. The thousand gifts list is a step, a practical way to do this. It is God, I'm making a list of things for which I am grateful. God, I'm going to praise you even when things don't go the way I want to. Um, and Lord, I know that you are concerned with my character. And I need to start asking the question of what are you trying to teach me through this circumstance instead of just trying to get out of it. James 1, 2 through 4 is you know, kind of the poster child of, of this sort of thinking. And uh, it's, it's a very famous passage. It says, count it on joy, Right? Let me flip here. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says various trials. Could be any trial. He says count it all joy. Why? Not because the trial is pleasant, but because of what will be produced in you through the trial. It says the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness will have its will lead to being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so if we can look at a circumstance and say, I don't like it, but I'm in James 1, 2 through 4 right now. Steadfastness is being developed. And I'm going to praise God for that. I think we'd see him move a lot quicker in certain circumstances. I can't promise one thing or another, but like I said, praise is connected to freedom, victory, and all these things in this passage. Let me just close with an illustration of this. And honestly, I could have just, if I had video footage of this, I could have just played this for the lesson and not even, you know, stood up here and talked to you guys for however long I've been doing it. Um, y'all know that um, Kathy Iandoli passed away recently. Some of y'all knew Lou. Um, many of you didn't. Uh, I never, I don't know if I met Kathy, but I knew Lou. And so I was, uh, I was at the funeral. And um, if any of y'all were there, it was a pretty full room. It was at Scotts Hill Baptist, and there were, there, were a lot of, there were a lot of people there. And so it was a, it was a very nice funeral. Um, it was very touching. Like I said, I didn't even know her, but I found myself um, tearing up at points. And I say tearing up because that sounds more manly than crying. And so I was, I was tearing up. I was, you know, just sweating. It was just sweat. And so there was so pretty traditional funeral, slideshow, um, songs, really beautiful stuff. But Lou is a very gifted musician, and he plays a host of instruments, and it seems to be, and I could be wrong, but I think his specialty is percussion. And so part of the ceremony, uh, he had his band with him. Um, I don't know what his band is named, but he had his band with him, and they went up on stage, and they played three or four worship songs. And he, uh, he played this really cool, like, gigantic xylophone sort of thing for one of them, which was, anytime a band uses unorthodox instruments, I'm always drawn to that. I think that's so cool. And then he got behind the drums. And I just remember looking at him, watching him in the, you know, behind the drum kit, watching him play the, the mega xylophone, I don't know what to call it, and realizing this is his wife's funeral. This is one of the clearest examples I've seen of rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus.
This is a man's wife's funeral. His heart must be in pieces. He's probably barely able to hold it together. But what is he doing? He's praising the Lord. He's worshiping. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, that is more powerful than anything I can say from the front of a room. That's somebody doing it. So, it's going to require a paradigm shift. It'll require a little work up front. But guys, when we're walking in joy and contentment, our impact for the kingdom is going to increase. Because you know what it's like. When you just have the joy of the Lord, you're excited about opportunities. You don't want to miss out what's going on in the kingdom. When we're grumbling and complaining, it's just this inward focus about the discontentment about my circumstances and other people kind of fall to the wayside. So, for the advancement of the kingdom, for your own contentment and joy in relationship with the Lord, um, let's uh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good and His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, I stand at the front of the list here, the front of the line, acknowledging before you that I have not done well at this many times. And sometimes, Lord, I wonder and, and fear even that I've been more of a grumbler than even the average person has been. And so, Lord, we just repent. This is the thing of obedience to you as well, because you say, through your word, through Paul, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then all these other passages about being thankful, Lord. I repent. Lord, I haven't done a good job at that. And so, Lord, we ask for your help. Like it says in Ephesians 5, Lord, these things flow out of being full of the Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that you fill us with your Spirit in a very powerful way, God, and that all the sort of things that don't line up with your word, your character, your ways, Lord, that these things just get pushed out. And that you help us just to keep our eyes focused on you, that we not veer to the right or the left, Jesus, but that we're just focused on you. Please help us to grow in this. Please encourage us, Lord. Please motivate us. Um, and above all else, Lord, just please speak to us. Our, whether we realize it or not, our greatest need is just to hear from you. And so please speak to us. Lord, I pray that small group time now is profitable, encouraging, and just beneficial for everybody. And pray us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, that's going to be it for this week. I hope that that was encouraging and motivating and perhaps even a little challenging. But more than all that, I just hope that the Lord spoke to you through it. As always, hope you all are doing great. Until next time.